0: You're on the Plants Grow Here podcast. I'm Daniel Fuller. Come along with me as we enter a hidden world of deep horticultural, ecological, and landscape gardening knowledge with featured experts, industry professionals, and enthusiasts. Working in a botanic garden is a dream life for many people. Maybe it's a dream life for you as well. Tim Entwistle is the CEO of the Royal Botanic Gardens in Victoria. He's the writer of the Talking Plants blog and host of the Talking Plants podcast. In this episode, you'll hear him talk about what it's been like working in botanic gardens at Sydney, Kew and Melbourne, and his advice for anybody wanting to work at a botanic garden. We also discuss his experience writing one of this year's most interesting memoirs, Evergreen, The Botanical Life of a Plant Punk. If you're looking for a last-minute present for a botanic gardens lover, check out the show notes or you can find it at your local bookshop in the garden section. G'day team, welcome to the show. Great to be here. So can you tell us a little bit about why you think botanic gardens are so important in Australia and around the world? Well, it's a kind
1: of big question because I think all gardens are important, and, and I, you know, for a whole whole lot of reasons, we've probably rediscovered during the pandemic those open spaces and the fact that green life um, adds to a city environment, particularly, but also you know wherever gardens are. So that's that's why we have gardens, why we have parks. Botanic gardens, though, have this extra layer, and those well have more than one extra layer, in fact. So they got a, a scientific. Overlay. So their their history is, they began as medicinal gardens, providing um, plants that people would use to, to heal people, and uh, you know, and and also with practical values. They then grew into scientific gardens, and it was a lot about the description of the world's plants, and they were being reflected in the way those plants were were laid out in a botanic garden. They then moved on to very beautiful aesthetic places with with fantastic landscapes, and where we sit today. If I look at my the own gardens I look at here, I look after Melbourne and Cranbourne. So Royal Botanic Gardens Victoria has these two beautiful sites. And both of those are first and foremost uh, lovely, attractive, calming places. So people often come to them just for respite or for a picnic or whatever, but they're also made up of plant collections. So there's that behind it, there are collections of individual plants. They have a, a scientific role and we have uh, preserve collections in our herbarium we have seed banks and we do bushfire recovery work all kinds of things like that um, but then also the one that sometimes people miss out on I think is the cultural aspect so we hold events here we had lightscape here recently with people coming in at night to see uh, a light show effectively and we very very popular in it but it m- most importantly it got people into this space uh, some people who'd never been here before they will come back to see the gardens, and it's also it is a legitimate place for celebration and events. So I often talk about nature, culture, and science as those three critical ingredients of a botanic garden.
0: I couldn't agree more. That yeah, cultural values definitely go unappreciated. Botanic gardens are somewhere that people have their first date. This, <laughs> this is where people fall in love. You know, this is these are important places to us as human beings. I think that's exactly right it's it's a pla and it's interesting you talk about dates two because I think it's a it's a place
1: where events happen people get married in botanic garden sometimes they propose they meet yeah they meet somebody it's actually a nice it sounds a bit weird but it's kind of a safe place to bring someone to you know it's a it's a lovely outdoor environment and if you just want to talk to someone then you might not you know you're just making friends with them it's kind of it's a place where you can go and and relax and feel comfortable it's sometimes. It's there. You're there as a big group, but often it's individuals and pairs of people, or group small groups of people, just looking for a little little private spot to um, yeah to to get to know each other.
0: Absolutely, Tim. Can you tell us about some of your different experiences working around the world in different botanic gardens, such as like Sydney and Kew? Yeah, I've been really
1: lucky in my working career to have worked in botanic gardens primarily. So yeah, I started off at universities, but then very quickly work in Royal Botanic Gardens Victoria here I am now as a as a botanist or a scientist and then I've been over I went up to Sydney and I became a director up there and then to Kew Gardens in London for a couple of years then back here as a director so I sort of did a big circle but um, working in all those botanic gardens is such a you know a privileged position really I'm really lucky to have done that and as, as someone who loves plants as a lot of us do uh, what, what a great place to work and each of those gardens, interestingly, they're all they're all a bit different, but different places and different climates, and you know, so they grow different kinds of plants. But um, it's probably the similarities are more apparent than the, the differences. I mean, they they all have those those same elements of that that nature culture science thing I talked about, but and they, they do it in different ways. But they're each uh, responding to the community they're in. So you know, Kew Gardens is a very old botanic garden in terms of botanic garden history and it's got a deep sense of history with uh, also as a royal garden originally and then it became a, a scientific garden and had a bit of influence from Joseph Banks after he'd, he'd uh, visited Australia and he, he never worked there but he had a lot of impact on on the on the way it was set up originally. And so you, you sense in that garden the, that really deep um, sort of botanical history, I suppose, a Western botanical history. And in Sydney... It's very like Melbourne, um, it's a, an amazing position in Sydney, the Botanic Gardens, sitting there on the harbour uh, and people often come there, you know, sadly probably for us as Botanic Gardens people to take a photo of the Opera House or take a photo of the bridge <laughs> but that, that's okay. They, they get there in the garden and then they realise how beautiful it is and then this, this garden in Melbourne uh, is... Uh, One of the most beautifully designed gardens. So, as I said, there's Cranbourne Gardens, which is quite modern and a really exciting new modern design with Australian plants. This heritage garden in Melbourne, though, and having worked in those three gardens that I've mentioned, and also travelled, visited maybe 200 or so botanic gardens around the world, I do think this Melbourne garden, as a landscape, really sits up there high as you know, just one of the best ways to present plants in a beautiful setting where it's not only looks good, but it can fu- function as a botanic garden and do all those things I talked about.
0: Mm. It's interesting to point out the difference between particularly the two gardens in Victoria. So you said Cranbourne's much more modern. So as you're walking through, you're looking at the water features and all this different stuff, whereas the botanic gardens in the city there in Melbourne is much more, it does feel like more of a heritage garden. It feels very traditional. Um, would you would you say that that is how the difference between them? It's
1: true, and, and that's you're quite right. The only thing I'd sort of add to that, though, is the Melbourne gardens, quite, it's quite subtle, but behind that lovely heritage overlay, we've been able to add things to it. So no botanic garden should be a static thing, and I think that's sometimes a mistake we make in gardens generally. Even a heritage garden is going to evolve, you replace trees, and a botanic garden has to keep doing all those things I mentioned. So we've added things like the Arid Garden recently, which is quite a different garden. And the way it looks is different. It's a bit mm. bit more of a modern design. We've added little small pocket gardens in fern gully with a, a boardwalk through it and a, a sensory garden which has smells and you know all, and colours and it's deliberately designed not as a a collection of kind of exotic plants but as a collection of familiar plants that you mm. you can react to and those additions. Just, I think, just point out that even in a heritage garden, a botanic garden should always be adapting and changing and trying to tell those stories in new, uh, exciting ways. So, while Cranbourne and the Australian Garden out there has this this modern design that's quite striking and I think does work in terms of getting people interested in Australian plants, uh, you know, we have to keep adapting even those older gardens.
0: Mm. Well, they've certainly got their work cut out from at the moment there with all of the reconstructions and stuff that are going on. Out of Cranbourne, yeah. 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 Yeah, that's a lot of work.
1: <laughs> I mean, it's it's great great to see in a way because we've got some um, support from the state government to do some, really go back and redo a couple of gardens that didn't quite work or the soil's not in great nick and, you know, we can, that, you know, the, the again, again it just points that thing, doesn't it, that gardens are not static and, you've got to kind of re reinvigorate reinvent and always you know some plants work some don't that's that's the fun mm-hmm. of gardening
0: how's your role changed and what do you do on a day-to-day basis these days
1: while i was on the tools it was really microscopes more than than uh, spades and uh and and pruning um because i'm not a horticulturist which is kind of interesting i think as you know directors around around the world in botanic gardens come from all kinds of backgrounds so I, I very much did, my career came up through botanic gardens, but more as a scientist, botanist, uh, interested in plants. In fact, I worked on algae. So my original research was on freshwater algae. And I did that because I, I used to like going bushwalking and I went into mountains, streams, and you collect these wonderful native people who might not realise, but there are native algae out there growing in our streams, just like there are the plants and the marsupials and all that kind of thing. So I got hooked on that. And then eventually moved more into flowering plants and then into botanic gardens and then into, into management. So my role changed from being a, a scientist and looking down a microscope, doing all the things scientists do and collecting, lots of collecting, which I enjoyed, uh, to, to, doing, to, to being manager of research groups here in Melbourne and the same in I moved up to Sydney originally and to look after a scientific research group and then became director there. And as, when you become a director you start to you attend more meetings, you um, deal with budgets, you deal with people, uh, you deal less with plants. And that's that's hard in a way, but the way I dealt with that, I suppose, is that I then moved more into promoting plants, uh, writing about them, talking about them, and that was my kind of outlet. I found as a director of Botanic Gardens, one thing you can do is, is really spruik um, plants and gardening and try and get people interested in it. So that that was my kind of outlet.
0: Yeah, I can relate with that as well. So I'm a maintenance gardener now stepping into the media role and exactly like that, it is much more about like the promoting of plants and stuff like that. And, yes, I still got my home garden. I will always have a home garden where I work in. But I think as, a, as an industry, we definitely need passionate people to step off the tools and start talking about it because we just don't have enough people in this industry and I don't think people regular people are seeing the benefits the way that you and I probably see them
1: yeah that's right I, I used to think the same thing in it's similar in science where as a, as a, a science manager if you like looking after scientists there are, um, I do think there are probably people who who just uh, love the work they do and they' and they're better at that they enjoy that and they, they might not just want to talk then you get others mm-hmm. who like the work but they enjoy the talking so it's I used to compare it to a cricket team of you know sort of bowlers and batters and all-rounders and the perfect is an all-rounder of course if they're really good at everything but you do and you find that in a botanic garden there are people who can be great ambassadors and talk about it not all with different voices you know don't have to be Mm. particularly don't want everyone to sound the same but that you know, finding the people and then giving them the opportunities to do that I think is important as well to, to let them um, get out there and, and, and talk about things. So I'd agree with you. We need, we need more more people to promote what we're doing, talk about it, and, and even I kind of think debate it a bit and have discussions. Uh, I don't intellectualise it too much, but feel free to sometimes we're, we're very positive about what we do, which is great, but I don't mind us, you know, sort of testing out a few of our things and what, what we really, you know, whether it's Australian plants versus growing exotics or whether it's, you know, mm. is it, bonsai cruelty to plants and whatever it is. You know, mm. Or genetically modified organisms, a whole lot of really kind of controversial topics that we should explore and talk about and, and you know, demonstrate we can lead, the if you like, the community discussion.
0: Yeah, I completely agree because there's a lot of organic YouTubers and stuff out there that are putting forward information that I think a lot of people are just believing, you know, like um, put salt on your weeds instead of put you know glyphosate on them. And you sort of, you want to say, let's have a discussion about this. Like maybe the pros and cons of glyphosate are different to the pros and cons of salt, for example.
1: Yeah, and and not just be black and white about it, because I think it, you know sometimes there's an argument. It's it's I have these arguments, not arguments, but discussions around mm-hmm. weeds too, and and whether to allow them or how how bad it is to have environmental weeds. And there's a there's a kind of a rather than just talking about we hate them or we like them, it's being realistic and practical. And as you say, using uh, you know any any chemicals in the garden just to debate that, or particularly you know potentially toxic chemicals to debate the pros and cons, the benefits and the costs. And it's nothing is completely simple.
0: Hmm. Not in my world anyway, not as a gardener (laughs) of 10 years. (laughs) (laughs) No. So, Tim, I'd like to move on now to your new book, Evergreen, The Botanical Life of a Plant Punk. Can you tell us about it?
1: Yeah, look, it's a a memoir which sort of surprises me perhaps as maybe some some people out there that um, I wasn't, Planning on writing this, but uh, about two years ago, I was approached by Thames and Hudson, and uh, Sally Heath, as their commissioning editor there, was was looking around to do memoirs, and she talked to me and said, "Look, your life looks interesting." And I, I she, when she first approached me, I said, "Oh, look, I've got this idea for a, a book on oaks. I'd loved. I've been obsessed with oaks for the last year, and this is kind of a COVID hobby, actually. I just for no particular reason, I just got really interested in them. We've got a great oak lawn here in Melbourne." And I was looking up and learning a bit about them and she said, no, 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 really a book about you and kind of how you <laughs> got to where you are. And uh, I think people are interested. And so it, it is about my background, how I got into botany, how uh, and, you know, I wasn't a necessarily a plants person when I was younger. I was probably more math, physics kind of person when I went to university, but I, I converted across. I went through that algal thing we've talked about. Then got into botanic gardens, worked in three you know, amazing botanic gardens around the world, um, had my ups and downs in those and a couple of crises to deal with. So it, it's trying to put the, the, good, the good and the bad, but really in the end, what was interesting, I didn't start off with this in mind, but I start talking about an old physic garden, in fact, the, probably the first modern botanic garden in the world at Padua, just out of Venice, and that's kind of where I start the book. Where I end it is thinking we've almost returned back to botanic gardens being a a medicinal or healing place. And not so much in the sense of displaying medicinal plants, but in the sense that they are places where we go for healing, particularly um, after COVID, but also just to, to for our general well-being. So I I swung right back around at the end and thought, look, after you know, thinking about my life and where I've got to, I always feel like botanic gardens have come back to where they started. So adding to that nature, culture and science, I thought let's add the word healing in there. And you can can use other terms and, you know, I'm not fussed about the word so much, but that sense that gardens are good for you as well.
0: Completely agree. And you hit the nail on the head when you said post-COVID as well because it is a completely different world post-COVID. I think pre-COVID people knew intellectually that plants are good for us and then I think, you know, we all had to shut down for a couple of months and we actually got out into the gardens and we made that a priority. And I think now people have actually felt it. And the felt experience is a different thing to the intellectual, oh, I already know that.
1: Yeah, that's, I think that is right. And it's, it's, in, it was interesting when we had, um, we were down in Melbourne with the five and 10 kilometer limits and people had to find their gardens in their local area. Our Cranbourne garden got discovered I was going to say rediscovered but it was really discovered by people living in Cranbourne and locally that if they had a botanic <laughs> garden within 5k who who would have known and uh, and that's been fantastic because now more people are going to Cranbourne the numbers are almost double per year it's about 400,000 now and that's really because of covid people discovering it's there and and in places like Melbourne you know once people could come back they they certainly flocked here for, for that um, and it's and it's not just botanic gardens I mean I, I think it's any park and it's the same near where I live every little green space has become so important and we understand or you sort of look at how it's made up to and you know have perhaps stronger views on what we'd like in it you know do we want those plants to look good and how, uh, is it being cared for all those kind of important things
0: completely agree um so you've got the word punk in the title of the book. So when I think of punk, I think of like rebellion, doing it yourself, that sort of thing. Is that how you think of yourself within the plant community?
1: Yeah, it's an it's an interesting title in a way and, and kind of slightly provocative, I suppose, and it, it, it does refer to a couple of things. It refers, which came out very early when I was just writing about my life, that I, I've, I haven't, my music interests are very much in that kind of, not so much punk, but more garage music and and uh, pub music. And I did start on the birthday party as my my kind of my favourite band when I was younger, and and haven't really evolved very far from that, sadly. <laughs> so that's that's what probably brought the the title to mind. So I've never played in a band, um, but I I love music and I still enjoy going out to see bands of that that kind of nature. Really, you know, young young bands who are just doing new things, and I, I think that's exciting, but. Then it does flow across into um in, in a kind of nice soft punk way into the botanic garden so um, it's it is about trying out new things it's about um tr- thinking about people that come to the gardens on their own terms and not just doing the same thing over and over so it's it's being radical in a fairly soft way as as it, as would be appropriate in a botanic garden you're not you're not allowed to kind of destroy that that <laughs> lovely history and and all the people love it. But making sure we do add new events, we add uh, different kind of interesting music when we add music. It doesn't necessarily have to be my kind of music. That's often a bit too noisy. But it's, it's being a little bit um, provocative and creative in what we do in the garden. So I like to think as I've gone through gardens, I've um, supported and encouraged new things to go on in those and even in plant displays, again, not, not doing something that's going to be totally disrupt the landscape. But being willing to try new things out and you know try interesting landscapes and planting, so that's it's a it's a it's a soft punk, a gentle punk.
0: <laughs> mm. I often think of podcasting as like punk as well, you know, because in the late seventies, you had these this bunch of people who everyone was telling them you can't make music, and then they just picked up a guitar and they were like, "Well, I like the way this sounds, so I'm just going to do it."
1: <laughs> I think that's a great uh, analogy, and I think you're right. Podcasts, I like. I'm a a big podcast listener and um both for music and kind of content and it has allowed people that freedom to do what punk music did was yeah everyone can be in a band everyone can make music everyone can talk to someone else and i mean that is the the big positive of of the internet and social media and all those kinds of things we know we know the negatives and Mm
0: -hmm. they're
1: kind of there but the (laughs) positives (laughs) positives are that that freedom to express yourself and and I think that's interesting coming back to botanical Gardens, so we shouldn't be exclusive and only here for a certain group of people. We should be very inclusive and, you know, listening to what people want and trying to, within those kind of constraints I talked about, adapt to that.
0: So it's not about, you know, the gardeners sitting up there in their ivory tower and then all the people coming in, oh, teach us, teach us. This is about creating a space for the people.
1: Yeah, yeah, it, it is. It's conversation and, and a shared shared kind of conversation, not just, just talking at people who come through the door and presenting them the botanical information at the gate. Yeah. Absolutely.
0: So why is now the right time for you to release the memoir? So that's just because you were approached or is there maybe a time in your life maybe where you're reflecting back or what would you say that it's just one thing?
1: Yeah, look. I mean, it was triggered by being approached, but to be fair, I am at that time of life and that terrible age where you start to look look back. I try not to do it too much because it can be boring for other people. But um, yeah, I, I did it. It gave me a chance to reflect, and I felt that having worked all this time in botanic gardens, I had I had something to share that that I thought would be interesting, and and even to the extent where it's it's not exceptional. It's you know I've been lucky in my breaks and done some great things, but. Um, each one of those is kind of incremental, and I took up an opportunity that came past, and it could have headed off in some other direction. I don't think it necessarily had to be where I went, but I thought that was good, and yeah, it wasn't. It felt like a good point because um, I'm over, over sixty now, sixty-two, and that that feels and sounds really old. I know, but it's um, it's the time when you you know you feel like you've got this chunk of Of life that you can put into some perspective and what I found interesting writing it was uh, it it gave me a chance to re-examine what I was doing and why I was doing it and that that helps even in my day-to-day job here now I can sort Mm -hmm. of think oh yeah i I might have just done this because I sort of felt like the right thing to do but in fact it's informed by you know decades of, of being in botanic gardens it kind of happens organically you know I'm not a person who analyzes my life or, or plans you know if decades ahead really uh, you sometimes you feel like it's just kind of it, it happens but it does actually have you know, there's a lot behind when it happens
0: mm. yeah it's like all the little micro choices it's not it's not like you plan out your life 20 years ahead it's like well you plan out you know okay well, this is where i want to be now i, I think know. that's
1: right and if you you know you need lucky breaks and i don't think you can over play that but but you do need to take the opportunities and so as little decisions on the way and and taking advantage of those if you make that call then you move with it i mean i you know when i was working on algae i probably thought i was going to be a might mm. seem odd to people but an algal expert and that would be my life you know because there are there are people who do that and there's so much to to do in the scientific area there and water monitoring and things that i you know be a fantastic contribution to society um but then, you know, my, another opportunity came up and I got interested in something else. I thought, oh, I can actually do a bit more in this area. And then when the kind of writing and uh, talking and doing radio and things like that came up, I thought, look, I can do more useful work in there than I probably can as a research scientist. Um, I feel more comfortable there. I can probably get, have more impact. And, you know, you make those calls along the way. I don't think either of them are right or wrong, but you make, mm. you know, make those decisions
0: yeah I can really relate with that like when I was a gardener, I thought I was going to be a gardener forever, even though a little part of me was like, Who knows and now I'm in podcasting it's just like like I really have like I'll definitely have this podcast for a long time, but I have no idea what I'll be you know when i'm fifty sixty years old I've got no idea I'm thirty years old, and I feel like my career's just starting that's
1: good that's great i mean i i I'm so envious too because the, all those opportunities and, and and I'm in so high there's a whole bunch of things I can still do, but just having those uh in like and i think i'm presuming too like you would have enjoyed gardening enjoyed podcasting they're all kind of it's not that you you leave one because you don't like it and something else mm. comes up yeah.
0: it's just life it's just how it mm. goes let's just say there's someone listening right now they're a domestic gardener or maybe they're in parks and gardens they're doing maintenance gardening maybe they're in landscape construction or something like that and they're sort of like thinking about well What about a job in botanic gardens? I reckon you're probably the right person to ask. What advice do you have for someone looking to get into working at a botanic gardens or whichever level that is? Yeah. Look, there's a
1: few different ways in. I I, I don't think there is one route, and I think it's if you're really keen to work in a botanic garden, just you you do need to increase uh, and get great skills. So if you're looking at being in the horticultural area in a botanic garden, just become very good at what you do. Uh, Work with... Plants don't. I don't think you need to be fussed if you're working with less plants than you might in a botanic garden. I mean, you can pick that up. And when people come to work here, they they mix. They're mixing with a whole range of plants. So you don't don't feel put off by the fact if you've you know you're working with a limited palette of plants because you're doing home gardens or you're in a park. I think it's it's getting those skill levels up. Uh, we do have you know some there are apprenticeships here occasionally at the gardens, and we'd like to have more of those. But they do come up from time to time. We. Have internships sometimes. Uh, people volunteer here, and that's it's an interesting route in. Um, it's hard because, you know, like me, when you're younger, I, I, you know, I had to a living, and I can't, you can't, not everyone can afford to do volunteering. But if you can, and there, or you want to do a part time, that can help, and that that might be um, doing a role. You know, we have, you know, conserva- orchid conservation groups here. We have people that help in the herbarium doing mounting of specimens. They're all kind of not perhaps not quite horticulture, but they get you into the place. I think, though, just if you're, you know, if you're looking to get put yourself up for a job here, it's it's knowing your plants, curiosity, um, and a good, a kind of good, um, I don't think of the right words, it, you, you're good as part of a team. You will work well in a group like a botanic garden. So there's always a group if you're here in a botanic garden. You might curate a particular area, but we want people that, have the you know hold this mission that we have about the importance of plants and really inspired by that, but equally they're going to work with their, their, their team here and the, the, the other colleagues here in a really productive way. So if you if you kind of came in and said, well, no, I, I, I want to work on a cactus, that's all I like, mm-hmm. we'd probably go, well, yeah, but you know a well-rounded horticulturist probably needs to work on other things for a while. So you know it's it's being open uh, and enthusiastic. Like I think, like all jobs, if you're kind of, you're intelligent and you you intelligent in the sense of you listen when you, you know to the what the people want in the workplace and what they're asking you, and you're genuine in your responses and your, and then you make sure you've got the skills, then mm. they're you the kind of person we want.
0: So just like in the garden, you know, we want to put the right plant in the right place. <laughs> We're trying to put the right employee in the right role.
1: Yeah, I think so. I think that's right. That's right. And and the best the best plant and the best employee is one that you can transplant. Uh, every <laughs>
0: <laughs> Bit of an all-rounder, as you yeah, say. Yeah, <laughs> So who's been influential in your life as a botanical plant punk? Maybe you knew them personally. Maybe you've never actually met them.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I, I've never been one often, you know, not often. People sometimes say if you've got mentors and I'm, I, I tend not to say that, but I, it's, it doesn't mean I'm not being you know, arrogant enough to say that people don't influence me. But I, I pick up, I sort of cherry pick from lots of people, I suppose. And the, the lecturers at university when I went to do botany at Melbourne Uni were fantastic. And the, the first year lectures were, let, were done by the most senior people in the botany department. So I went in and was doing this mass physics subjects And there was one subject in botany I did more as a hobby for interest. And they were such good lectures that that stuck with me. In the next year, I switched right around and did nothing mm. but botany. And I did that the rest of the time. Same with when I got into algae. I had two great lecturers and a guy called Jerry Craft at Melbourne and Bill Welcoming out in the Trobe. And they were supervising me and they taught me great things, but particularly Jerry Craft too, the, his approach to life he just had this thirst for knowledge but also really inspiring leader he 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 just was so appealing to us he was a journalist philosopher and his background he moved into algae because he just loved the kind of sense of discovery and that really that enthusiasm drove drove me into that area so there's that look authors I, I love I like writing so they're you know a lot of authors I read and, and people like Gore Vidal who probably died not that long ago, but people who I thought could write really well influenced me. And in music, you know, I mentioned the birthday party already, someone like Nick Cave who eventually planted a tree here in uh, Melbourne Gardens, which was a, a huge delight to me. Uh, and, you know, and actually meeting him and being able to show him around the gardens was, you know, again, a, a luxury, beautiful thing to happen, but also... Um, I do generally get inspired by good music and good musicians who if you look at someone like him and there are many others around who've adapted and changed through their career and still do really creative things, that's inspiring to me. Someone who's willing to kind of embrace new ideas but always with high quality, always Mm -hmm. just that perfect approach.
0: So never get old, just keep that fire going, keep the passion going, keep discovering, just keep it new.
1: Correct. That's exactly right. And, and you know, it's, and, and I do like, you know, around Melbourne, particularly some great young bands around um, on anti fade uh, records and groups like that, where there are people who have such enthusiasm for what they're doing. And coming back to that kind of initial question, we were talking about, you know, the punks sort or of ethos, but it was it, you just being able to do what you like, not so much worried about the quality, just getting stuff out and then moving on to something else. I really admire that in people young and old.
0: (laughs) I'm the same, exactly the same, Tim. So we've come to the end of the episode, and I always like to ask my guests one final question. It doesn't have to be on topic. It can be about whatever you want. Is there anything else you'd like the listeners to know about?
1: Um, Yeah, look, I had to think about if they... I mean, one thing I could suggest is they read my book because it's all in there. I don't don't need to say any more, but... um, when they I think for me uh, an interesting oh yeah if I, again, looking back and having spent time writing uh, writing this book, Evergreen, the thing that did occur to me is that I've I've always enjoyed different different things in life, and that from reading to music to botanic gardens. And I don't really like or need that kind of pigeonholing. And I think that's if you like something, um, there's a there's a mention in the book. This is really obscure, but I have this interest in um, Dr. Samuel Johnson, who wrote the first dictionary. Very you know old English writer uh, writes really obscure, sort of slightly dull writing, I'd have to say. But interesting, really, really flawed person. Now I like him, and I go and I've joined the society here in in Melbourne, so I'm happy to to go and see you know. Uh, only a nose job on Saturday and then go and give a talk at the um, Dr. Johnson Society on the Sunday because I like it.
0: So it's a, about the
1: words themselves for you, is it? It's a bit about words and and as a person, he is an interesting words person, Dr. Johnson, but um, with music and with him, again, it's a kind of attitude and approach. And he was, so Samuel Johnson, he's big, he was always frustrated because he couldn't quite do all the things he wanted to do and he, he tried he felt he was he had so many ideas that never got completed and I can empathize with that. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Me too. <laughs> <laughs>
0: oh. Thank you so much for your time, Tim. It was an awesome episode. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you, Dan. It was great talking to you. All the best.
0: When was the last time you visited your local botanic gardens? They're the perfect place to take your partner, your friends, your family, or just yourself for a picnic take off your shoes so you can feel the grass beneath your feet, enjoy a few moments of peace and admire the diversity of plants. If you'd like to buy Evergreen, The Botanical Life of a Plant Punk, check the show notes or find it in the gardening section at your local bookstore. If you're wondering what to listen to now, check out the Cranbourne Botanic Gardens audio tour I recorded with Russell Luck and Marie Veldhoven in episode 132 of the Plants Grow Here podcast.